Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, our mission has been dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. A hallmark of the institution is the caliber of our fellowship. Our renowned scholars have, been, uh, have both academic and practical experience. Their work is rigorous, independent, and grounded in history, data, and logic. The dissemination of their work has led to significant impacts on important public policy initiatives here and around the world. These briefings are just one of the ways we hope to inform the discussion on the difficult challenges before us. As a reminder, we will, take in, we will be taking audience questions and I want to encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Today's discussion is with political scientist and education scholar Terry Moe and it's about the future of education reform and its politics. Terry is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of political science at Stanford University. He has written extensively on the politics and reform of American education, including his most recent book entitled, The Politics of Institutional Reform, Katrina, Education, and the Second Face of Power. In 2005, he received the Thomas B. Fordham Foundation Prize for Excellence in Education. Terry, welcome. I'm glad you can join us today for this, for this discussion. Yeah, great to be with you. Great. To get us started, can you uh, tell us a bit about the history of education reform in the United States and, and, and the nature of the politics? What have Democrats wanted and why? What have Republicans wanted and why? Well, uh, as you probably know, uh, education reform got underway uh, during the early Reagan years. Uh, and ever since then, you know, this is 40 years ago, uh, uh, it stands as uh, probably the longest running uh, uh, reform movement of any kind mm -hmm. uh, in American history uh, throughout this time, uh, up until about 10 years ago. Uh, it was uh, a movement that, that had supporters in both parties. Uh, and that, that's a key thing about it uh, that accounted for the successes that it has had. Uh, so uh, among Republicans, uh, you know, they had a big advantage. Uh, they weren't allied with the teachers' unions. They were opposed to the teachers' unions, and the unions hated them. So uh, uh, that gave them really a free hand to move ahead with reforms. Plus, uh, ideologically, uh, they were wide open to alternatives to the traditional top-down uh, political bureaucratic system that had traditionally run the public schools. Um, the, the problem... Uh, the, the thing that sort of kept them from moving ahead full speed was that they had an incentive problem. Uh, their constituents are mainly in the suburbs and in rural areas, and those people are not at the forefront of demanding fundamental change in the public schools. And that, I think, has sort of diluted uh, the incentives of a lot of Republicans to move in that direction. Even so, some of the most prominent education reformers in the country have been Republicans. Uh, George W. Bush um, was responsible for the adoption of No Child Left Behind, uh, which had its flaws, but the logic behind it uh, was, look, uh, we have a public education system that we spend over $600 billion a year on, and it's never been held accountable for actually teaching kids something and it makes sense to try to do that in a systematic way. And that's what No Child Left Behind tried to do, even though it needed fixes. 
that ultimately were never made, but I think he gets a lot of credit uh, for taking that step forward. Also at the state level, um, Jeb Bush in Florida was probably the most successful uh, education governor in the history of this country. Uh, there were other governors that were successful too, like Mitch Daniels. Uh, so the Republicans uh, really did a lot to promote education reform. Uh, the Democrats, on the other hand, um, are well known as the party that is uh, opposed to reform, uh, mainly because they are in alliance with the main vested interests that are anchored in the traditional system. The teachers unions care about jobs and uh, uh, the school boards that care about their own money and enrollments and control. Um, and so they've basically been opposed to the main lines of education reform, school choice and accountability. And what they consider reform is more money, you know, more social services for schools, more early childhood education, but they want to leave the basic structure of the traditional top-down system intact. Um, even so, there have been important reform elements within the Democratic Party. Uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore were big supporters of uh, charter schools and of school accountability. Um, uh, Barack Obama was an even stronger supporter of choice and accountability, and he and Arne Duncan, his Secretary of Education, uh, uh, set up a race to the top, a competition among the states uh, to promote those ends. Uh, that was a, a very big deal. And also within the Democratic Party, uh, there was a group, and still is, called Democrats for Education Reform that has been a really powerful force in local elections uh, promoting uh, reformist outcomes. So uh, I think pulling back from this, you, you can see that, that there are important forces for reform in both parties. And a lot of these reform efforts that were successful were successful because they were bipartisan. And that's been a big part of the history of this. Yeah. So 40 years of the reform agenda, uh, there must be something to show from it. How much progress have reformers made and has the system really improved? Well, all right. Uh, the place to start is by recognizing that in any institutional system, uh, there are going to be groups that benefit from the system, uh, not just because they get services, but because they get jobs and because they get contracts and because they get control uh, and they, they get money. Um, and so these vested interests are going to resist efforts to change the system, even if the system is performing badly. Mm -hmm. And that has happened in education, as the unions and the school boards have tried to resist reform right from the very start. They're very powerful and they have been very successful in limiting the amount of progress that reformers have been able to make. So over time, I would say we have um, a lot more school choice than we used to have. Uh, and uh, we have uh, more school accountability than we used to have. But it's all relative. So uh, the first charter bill was passed in Minnesota in 1991, 30 years ago. And even today, only six to 7% of American school children are in charter schools. It's really a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. When it comes to accountability, you know, it, we're really not holding schools accountable for their performance. And when it comes to something so basic as just getting bad teachers out of the classroom, turns out we can't even do that. Yeah. You know, and it's been decades 
So I would say that, that bottom line, uh, this reform effort has, has been a valiant effort, uh, but progress has really been disappointing. Disappointing. We have a question which asks you to compare the performance of charter or, or choice-based schools with state-run schools. Are there differences on average in the performance of students in these two systems? Um, yes, uh, uh, but they're mixed. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there are uh, really uh, competent independent studies done, for example, by Credo, which is an organization here at Stanford, uh, uh, and by Doug Harris, who is in New Orleans. And what they show is that uh, um, uh, charter schools do quite well. Uh, on average, I think that they are better than the typical public school, but it varies by states. Some states have bad charter systems. And I think the big thing is that there are a bunch of charter schools at the low end of the continuum that are bad. And parents, contrary to, to market ideology and you know, the theory, mm -hmm. uh, you think that parents would bail out of bad schools. In some percentage of the cases, and it's not trivial, they don't. They continue to patronize these schools because they like the teachers or because the schools are close or whatever. And bad schools still proliferate in the, the charter realm. And so that drags the whole charter movement, the whole population of charter schools down. And so I think the key uh, is recognizing, wow, we have some trailblazing charter schools, KIPP and Aspire and a number of others. Uh, on average, charter schools do really well. But if we could get rid of this tail of the continuum and substitute even average charter schools, the whole charter school population would definitely uh, be better on average than traditional public schools. And that's not to say that there aren't good regular public schools, but on average, charter schools do very well. Yeah. Got it. Terry, let's get back to the politics of education reform. You said that the bipartisan pattern of reform politics has changed and broken down in many ways. How did that happen? Well, uh, basically things have gone from bad uh, to worse um, uh, over the last 10 years. Um, during the Obama years, reform was at the top of the political agenda. But then when Hillary Clinton got the nomination, Hillary uh, Clinton has long been uh, allied with the teachers unions um, and she has been opposed uh, to both uh, school choice and to accountability. Uh, and she's basically all about more money, more services, that kind of thing that leaves the structure of the system intact. Uh, also, uh, over recent years, progressives have become more powerful a force within the Democratic Party, uh, and they are anti-charter uh, and very much in favor of the traditional system protecting traditional public schools and this too has, has made the Democratic Party even more resistant uh, to reforms. Uh, on the Republican side of the ledger, um, uh, dating roughly from about 10 years ago with the rise of the Tea Party, uh, Republicans have moved very far right. And they are very much a sort of free market, ideologically pure uh, uh, contingent now. Uh, this has been well documented by political scientists. I think a lot, a lot of people, especially conservatives, tend to think that, well, you know, uh, Republicans have moved right, 
but the Democrats have moved far to the left and, and in fact have become a socialist party or something like that. But political sci scientists have shown uh, and documented that really what's happened in our polarized uh, system is that the Republicans have moved much further to the right than Democrats have moved to the left. Democrats are a more moderate party on the whole than the Republicans are. And what this means is that like, yeah, these Republicans support school choice, but they hate regulation. And so they are opposed to many of the kinds of regulations of the school choice system that would, I, in my view, make perfect sense in guiding choice and competition in the right directions. Uh, and that would uh, enable um, cooperation with Democrats in moving toward reasonable, acceptable choice systems and uh, Republicans are much less likely to agree to that kind of thing. Same thing is true on accountability. As Republicans moved right, they began to see any kind of federal effort as federal overreach. They came to, even though they voted for No Child Left Behind, they've come to hate No Child Left Behind. And uh, 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 as, a, as a result, they wanted to kill it and devolve all authority to the states to carry out accountability. Um, and that was ultimately carried out in uh, 2015 with the Every Student Succeeds Act, ESSA. And the teachers unions were totally in favor of that. And so what you had was an alliance, weirdly, of the teachers unions and the Republicans to pass this uh, new legislation that put responsibility for accountability on the states and what that really means, because the vested interests in education are much more powerful at the state and local level than they are at the national level, means that accountability is dead, right? And uh, that, I think that's really an unfortunate thing. Uh, the Republicans see it as, as an effort to let a thousand flowers bloom. In my view, that's a joke. It might happen in a few states, but the problem is it ha in a lot of states, what you get is just the opposite. These states have no intention of holding their schools accountable. And the result for the nation is going to be a school system that is much less uh, focused on holding these schools accountable. Let, and let me add one thing about the Trump administration, uh, since that's the last four years of our lives. Um, under the Trump administration, they claimed to be totally in charge, uh, totally in favor of school choice. In fact, they've done virtually nothing. Uh, the Republicans controlled Congress uh, for two years. They had the presidency during that time, unified government, that it was a perfect opportunity uh, to adopt a big, bold education reform. What did they do? Nothing. So I think that this is a clear indication of what kind of priority uh, the Trump administration places on education reform. He never talks about it. He never does anything about it. And I think it's also an indication of where the Republicans are right now uh, as education reformers, and that is nowhere. Got it. If you're just joining us, I'm Tom Gilligan, and this is the Hoover Institution's virtual policy briefing with Terry Moe. Uh, Terry, an important election's coming up. Arvid asked the following question. Who's going to be better for education, uh, President Trump or President Biden? Well, not to be a downer, um, although I, I've already been a downer, I suppose. <laughs> uh, um, uh, basically, they're both bad. 
because what's, what's going to happen is that if, if Trump wins the election, you're going to get more of the same, right? Uh, Trump doesn't care about uh, uh, education reform. He never has. Uh, and there's, there's no impetus within the Republican Party, uh, within Congress, to move on education reform. So I think if Trump wins, education reform is dead. Um, if Biden wins, then you know what's the Democratic Party going to do? Uh, uh, with, especially with these progressive forces in charge, and with the teachers' unions, especially powerful in the Democratic Party, uh, all you're going to get in terms of reform is demands for more money, more social services, uh, more um, uh, early childhood education. And I'm not saying that those things are are bad. It's just that they're not real reform. Uh, they don't do anything to change the basic structure of the system. And I think it's the basic structure of the system that's the problem because it gets all the incentives wrong in not promoting the highest possible performance. Yeah, interesting. You're listening to Hoover Senior Fellow Terry Moe. You can find more research by Hoover Fellows at hoover.org. Uh, Terry, let's, let's turn to the impact of the coronavirus on education. Uh, disasters can often propel reform. An example is Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans which is something you've written extensively about in your book, The Politics of Institutional Reform, Katrina Education, and the Second Face of Power. What happened to education policy in New Orleans as a result of Hurricane Katrina, and why did it happen? Well, what happened was a revolution. Uh, it's really quite stunning. Um, Katrina destroyed most of the city of New Orleans. Uh, it destroyed the school system. Uh, and along with it, it destroyed the power of the vested interests. And uh, that meant the power of the school board and the local teachers union. And when they were wiped out, local decision makers and state decision makers were free. Right? They were free to do whatever worked. These people were not ideologues. They were very pragmatic. They were problem solvers. All they wanted to do was whatever it took to make good schools, good for them. And so since there was nothing in their way, they simply tried to move forward and create something that worked. Well, they weren't ideologues. Uh, they didn't have any preconceived notion of what this system was gonna look like. It's really quite a story. And uh, over time, they worked their way towards something that did work. And that turned out to be an all charter system. Uh, in which every family chooses a school, and now every child, virtually, goes to a charter school. This is the most innovative, distinctively different system in the entire country, and it happened because there were no vested interests in the way to stop it. Um, mm -hmm. The flip side of this is what it shows is what power and vested interests are preventing in all the other school systems around the country, because every school system has these vested interests. They all have a stake in protecting jobs and control and enrollments and money. Yeah. And that's what they do every day. And the kinds of reforms that we see around the country that we call reform are really just these incremental changes that don't make a fundamental difference. And in New Orleans, we see a fundamental difference, but it's only because the vested interests were wiped out. Yeah. Terry, are the vested interests trying to reconstitute themselves in, in New Orleans? Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, 
uh, number one, the teachers unions, in order to uh, get back up to speed, have to organize each charter school individually, right? They can't organize the entire district in one fell swoop. Organizing schools individually is very difficult. Uh, uh, and you can see that because they have such a hard time organizing private schools and organizing charter schools. Right, right. So there's that. Uh, and uh, the school board is a vested interest, but it's also elected. Right. Now, it used to be that the teachers unions were the main influence in school board elections, and so they were able to get their people elected to the board. They could control the board. Uh, but... Uh, with uh, uh, Katrina and the rise of reformers, reform groups got organized. They got well-funded with help from philanthropists by Michael Bloomberg, like Michael Bloomberg and others. Um, and they captured control of the school board. And mm. so now uh, we have a reformist school board in uh, New Orleans, and that helps to protect the system uh, from reversion uh, back to traditional ways of doing things. Yeah. There's also, I should add, just been state legislation that supports that. I see. Outstanding. And the kids are getting better schools. Yes. I, I, the performance in New Orleans is way up compared to what it was prior to Katrina. Yeah. Terry, so it seems like your research on Katrina offers a ray of hope in, in, by suggesting that the way the school districts respond to the current pandemic might be fruitful. I have a couple questions along those lines. Eric asks, how is COVID reshaping the future of K through 12 education? And Leslie asks, will the pandemic be a boost to homeschooling and other alternatives that improve the quality of education? Well, um, I think it's well known that disasters are opportunities for change, right? They create disruption and chaos and they force uh, decision makers to do things differently and to think about things differently, right? And that's, you know, all, all things being equal, a, a formula for change. And one way that you can see that is in the district's reliance now on online learning. So, you know, what you hear are a lot of complaints and a lot of negativity uh, as people try to get used to this thing that they don't know anything about, right? So teachers and districts um, uh, don't know how to do this. Uh, they're sort of stumbling around trying to make it work. Parents hate the new role that they have to play at home and students don't quite know what to make of it. Um, but I think the positive side of that is that they're gaining experience and familiarity. And as time goes on, they're going to find out that there are some aspects of online learning that really work. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is online learning has tremendous potential. Uh, for giving kids and teachers enormous flexibility um, and, and lowering the costs of education and not in substituting for in-person uh, education, but in supplementing it. Yeah. Um, and there are schools that do that. The rocket ship schools in San Jose have been tremendously successful. They have in-class learning for kids most of the day, but those kids uh, learn on computers, online, reading and math. You have these little kids in there learning how to read and doing math uh, for a couple hours a day. And it turns out that leads to a tremendous cost saving there. Uh, they don't need as many uh, certified teachers as they otherwise would. Um, and uh, the kids are learning 
more. Those, those schools consist of all disadvantaged kids and yeah. they've just done a great job. Yeah. So, you know, let me just add another thing that the online learning experience is a big part of what's new. Um, uh, but the teachers unions will oppose it. Uh -huh. uh, they're still powerful. And so once the pandemic dies down, they will do everything they can to make sure that things go back to the way they were with totally in class um, teaching with a lot of teachers. Um, also, another factor uh, that's really important here is that school districts have a lot less money going forward. They're going to take a huge financial hit, worse than during the Great Recession. And uh, how, how are they going to handle um, social distancing and caps on class size and caps on number of kids on campus uh, with a lot less money? How are they going to do that? Um, uh, so all of this is going to force the districts to do things differently, and that'll mean maybe online learning, uh, but it'll also mean maybe the districts will press the unions for more flexible labor contracts. Yeah. Um, they may also demand more flexibility in hiring and firing and certification. Yeah. Um, and they may be more open to school choice just because, because they can't handle all the kids. Yeah. Um, so there are opportunities for change. But again, the teachers unions will oppose all of these things. Yeah. And they're very powerful. So it's not as though they're going to happen naturally. Yeah, got it. Uh, Car Carolyn asked, what education restructuring would you like to see? What kind of reform initiatives do you favor? Well, um, I think that uh, the single most important reform is school choice if it's designed properly. And the reason is that school choice gives parents more options. They're no longer trapped into going to schools that may be really terrible. Um, uh, options are, are really important. Another part of this is that these are schools of choice. And so parents don't have to go there. And if the schools are performing poorly, they can leave. And that gives the schools incentives to put the emphasis on performance and to hire teachers who are really good, to hire principals who are really good. Mm -hmm. And as any organization theorist knows, the key to an effective organization is getting the incentives right. And a well-designed choice system can get the incentives right and put the focus on performance. Mm -hmm. Also, um, I think one of the big problems with accountability, you know, ever since No Child Left Behind has been that it's ultimately bureaucratic. It, it's a way of sort of taking a big top-down structure and saying, okay, we need to have measures of people's performance, like test scores, and then we're going to attach rewards and sanctions to those measures. And uh, it turns out that it just doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. um, in a choice system, accountability mechanisms, you know, they're not perfect, but they're built in. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that everybody in a school, all the teachers and the principals know that if they don't do a good job, parents are gonna leave. That's part of it. The other part of it is if they don't go, do a good job in a well-designed system, they'll be shut down. And so they are being held accountable for their performance and it happens 
naturally, right? And so do you need to measure teachers' performance in terms of test scores, you know, and come up with these quantitative measures of who's a good teacher and who's a bad teacher? No, you don't. If you have a school with 20 students and all the decisions are being made at the school level, basically everybody knows who the good teachers are and who the bad teachers are. And these kinds of decisions don't require bureaucracy. Right? And so you can basically do away with most of the cumbersome accountability mechanisms that don't work. Okay, having said that, one final thing is that the way to set up a choice system is not to have some sort of a free market arrangement where you just have schools of choice and wish everybody good luck. There has to be a, a structure within which the system operates. And that means there have to be curriculum standards. The schools have to be audited. Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, there have to be standards for admissions to make sure that all kids have an equal opportunity to attend the best schools. Um, and there have to be mechanisms for shutting the bad schools down, right? And so these things are really critical. And I, I think a big problem is that there are a lot of choice advocates who don't want any of these regulatory mechanisms because they see the heavy hand of government. Yeah. Uh, the way to see a choice system is that it, it is a, a government system that makes use of choice and competition and simply sets up a structure of rules, simple rules, basic rules, right, about admissions and so on, that right. channel choice and competition in directions that we as citizens want them to go in and that lead to much better outcomes than you would get if you just let choice do anything in an unregulated fashion. Yeah. Terry, you don't have a lot of questions on charter schools. I'm going to ask you these questions because uh, sure. Victor uh, asked, is the pay rate of charter school teachers what attracts or retains good teachers? If so, should we be paying public school teachers more? Well, these are complicated questions. Um, I think uh, charter school teachers on average are paid less um, than public school teachers. However, in some uh, schools, uh, they're paid more. Yeah. Um, uh, rocket ship uh, was, was paying many of its teachers more uh, than the regular public schools because it was rewarding good teachers that they, they wanted to keep. The, the important thing there is that they have the flexibility um, to use pay to attract good teachers, right? That's a, that's a very important thing. Yeah. Um, uh, on the, the public school side, I, th I think the, the big problem is that uh, all of the proposals that come from within the system and that are supported by the teachers unions involve paying everybody, all three million public school teachers, more. Okay, that's a, just an enormous expenditure, right? And um, it's, it's infeasible uh, to do that. And we're already spending in California uh, a very large percentage of the general fund on um, uh, schools and on teacher salaries. Yeah. And it's not as though uh, we can just boost that by 10% or 20%. It just isn't, isn't doable. Um, so I, that's another reason why I think we need to move toward a choice system where the schools themselves decide within their budget how much teachers should be paid. Yeah. I think in charter school, teachers are not 
motivated first and foremost by the money that they're getting paid. I think they believe in the school's mission mm -hmm. um, and they're excited about what they're doing. They're often younger. Some of them are not certified, right? It's a different crew of people. Uh, in the public school system, you get more people who are sort of career oriented, think about working their way up within the public system and, and pay may uh, play a more important role. But I don't know that that's uh, the best approach to this. Got it. Uh, Terry, I have a question from somebody named Terry, which is why is it so hard to close troubled charter schools? Well, I, I think the obvious reason is that it becomes a political problem because there are parents who become attached to the school and teachers who become attached to the school and they scream bloody murder when politicians come along and want to shut those schools down. Um, but I think it's absolutely essential uh, if we're going to have a well-functioning charter system in which the whole population of schools performs well that the bottom end of those schools gets shut down. And so there needs to be an agency of government that is operating according to specific rules that will implement those rules in shutting down bad schools. And if parents don't like it, that's really too bad, right? Yeah. They need to accept that. And the, the, what's gonna happen when these schools get shut down is that other schools are gonna take their place. In many cases, they'll be in the same building. They'll just have a different name and they'll have different teachers and a different principal. Sure. But it's not as though these people are gonna be without a school. They're just gonna have a different school and hopefully a better school. Terry, I wanna ask you a little bit of a question here about um, who should implement the reforms and I'll frame it uh, within the context of a question from Stephanie. Uh, she asked, the conversation about bad schools and accountability assumes we all agree about how to measure quality. And I don't think that is true. Where do you see the national conversation heading around that? You know, and one way to ask this is who should be leading and implementing, who should be lead, taking the lead on implementing key reforms that involve accountability and quality measurements, et cetera? Is that done at the local level, state level, federal government, both? How do we think about that? Well, that's a big question. Um, you know, I think uh, the way this started out, it, it, we had a focus on academic achievement. Yeah. Right. And I think uh, there's a lot to that. I mean, I, I think the fact of the matter is we have kids who can't read at the level they should be reading. At. They can't do math. They don't know history. They don't know science. This is really uh, uh, a disaster for them as they try to build lives and build careers, but it's also a disaster for the nation because this is supposed to be the foundation for economic growth and for the well-being of our society. Kids need to know things. Um, okay, so having said that, um, uh, you can't just have a system that's based on standardized test scores, right? And so we need to have uh, more measures of what it means for a school to be doing a good job. Okay, so there's that part of it. Uh, another part of it is that um, uh, I, I think if we move to school choice um, and we have um, uh, a framework uh, that specifies in a set of standards what it is that students are supposed to know, and if we have testing that indicates what they do know, 
And if we have evaluations taking place inside the school uh, about how well the school is doing and about how well the teachers are doing, then a lot of the accountability uh, that needs to be taking place can be taking place automatically within the schools because people are going to be leaving schools that aren't doing a good job. So that's part of it. Another part of it is this national, state, local thing. So let me just say something about that. Um, I think uh, many people sort of automatically think that state and local government uh, uh, governance of the schools is better than um, getting the federal government involved. Uh, there's a certain common sense uh, notion that this should work better because it's closer to the people. Um, if you go back to 1983, when the school reform movement started, uh, the whole reason the federal government got involved in school reform is that the state and local governments were doing a mediocre job of providing us with a high quality school system. Uh, there are some states that are really good and lots of states that are not good at all. And they're dragging the whole country down. And so people who think that we can just rely on state and local governments, I think are wrong about that. Also, there are huge spillover effects with education. You know, the nation depends for its economic growth on the quality of its education system, the whole education system. Um, our democracy depends on having an educated citizenry that is socialized to democratic norms. And we're talking about the whole country here. We're not talking about just a few states. And so when some states do a bad job of that, it has huge spillover effects to the nation as a whole. And this is a classic case of externalities that need to be internalized by the national government so that we can provide an efficient system that provides as much academic excellence as possible for the country, right? as much democratic socialization, socialization as possible for the country as a whole, and if you leave these things to the individual states, uh, what's gonna happen is that we're gonna get a very efficient low level outcome. There is a role here for the national government to step in and try to make sure that we can lift up all of the states by having common standards and common mechanisms that allow all states to have better education systems. We can't just let 50 states go their own way. People are dreaming if they think that that's going to lead to um, uh, a much better system all on its own without any role for the national government. That's just wrong. Yeah, Terry, we'll end with these uh, questions which are reinforcing. Both Nick and Margaret wanted to hear your opinions about Common Core which you just spoke to, whether or not a national system, one supported by governors, would lead to the kind of accountability that would help us elevate quality of education at the state and local level. Yeah, well, uh, the idea behind Common Core is that it makes sense to have a, a rigorous set of standards, number one, that are uniform across the entire country so that uh, you can expect the same rigor and the same standards in Pennsylvania as in Arkansas, right? Mm -hmm. And so when kids move around the country, the standards are the same. This is a way of trying to ensure that you don't have like really 
bad schools and un uneducated kids emerging from those schools in one part of the country and mm -hmm. the opposite in another part of the country when the whole country needs, needs well-educated kids. I, I think a, 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 a uniform curriculum that is rigorous and well thought out is needed for the country as a whole. And if you look at Europe, they all have these and they all have national tests that determine how well kids are doing and how much they know, Yeah, uh, you know, in math and in reading and in science and in biology and all the rest. So, you know, I think America has sort of moved away from that, has, has been resistant to that. But I think the nation as a whole suffers if we don't have something like that. And so like with Common Core, Republicans, once, once they became extreme um, and uh, very ideological about the federal government, demonizing the federal government, everything the federal government does is an overreach, um, uh, uh, came out against Common Core. Uh, and I think that this is really unfortunate. Uh, I, I think if you just think about all the externalities that are involved, that affect the nation as a whole, it's just crucial for there to be uh, a national component in trying to come up with the whole system of education in which the national and state and federal and local governments all have a role to play. Mm -hmm. Got it, Terry. You know, we reached the end of our time. We have a dozens more questions. I'm sure we could stand here for a long time, but I appreciate you joining us today. We had a wonderful discussion. All right, thank you. Our next Hoover virtual policy briefing will be Thursday, June 25th at 11 a.m. Pacific time and 2 p.m. Eastern time with Stephen Kotkin, who will be talking about China, Russia, and American freedom. American freedom. Stephen is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a history and international affairs scholar. You can join Thursday's briefing at the same link you signed in on today. And you will find the Hoover Institution online at hoover.org and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Again, thank you for joining us today, and I hope to see you next time. Goodbye.